Our sermon text this afternoon is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We're looking at verses 27 to 39, verses 27 to 39. And um, I'll pray before we read that. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now study your word, the Holy Scriptures, we pray, Father, that you would indeed make the Bible open before us and that you would make our hearts open before the Bible. Father, that we may receive that which it is you have to give us. May we learn the wisdom of God, not the foolishness of men, nor the doctrines of devils. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And... No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So I'll use the word religion here and I'm using it in a not necessarily bad way. If there is such a thing as good and true religion, well, the opposite of good and true religion must be false religion. And if there is such a thing as good and true religion, it is going to ever be in conflict with false religion. And the theme that we're starting to pick up here, which will continue for quite a while through the gospel, is that Good and true religion, as being taught by the Lord Jesus himself, is in conflict with false religion and that the primary, at least at this section of the Gospel of Luke, the primary carriers or communicators of false religion are those that are being called the Pharisees. Also, the scribes get a mention. The scribes and the Pharisees are basically being set up here as the purveyors of false religion and those with whom Jesus is entering into a conflict. And the conflict is going to increase. They became annoyed when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic who was lowered through the ceiling. Remember their question, how can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Part of the question was correct. Only God can can forgive sins. But there was this refusal on their part to accept that they were in the presence of divinity. 
that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. You know, it was Simon Peter, poor old Simon Peter, who, you know, all of us in one way or another, I think we love Peter. We, we identify with his life as a disciple in that he was kind of up and down. One moment he's making this wonderful confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You know, just perfectly correct. Beautiful doctrine coming from his lips. Exactly correct. Or, or when he realized who Jesus was in the boat. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. You know, sort of he has these moments where he, he speaks truth and it's truth that he's received from God. As Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 18, you know, he received it from God the Father. And yet, sort of the way the text runs, it could have been as little as an hour later. It might have been a day later. We don't know. But basically, he's saying uh, to Jesus when Jesus said, you know, I've come to save the souls of my people and I'm going to go to the cross and die on their behalf. And Peter says, no, <laughs> no, Lord, no, let it never be so. You know, and Jesus has to turn around and tell him, get behind me, Satan. So he's he's had he has this experience of both speaking truth by the spirit of God and then. In almost the next breath, he speaks foolishly by the power of the devil. And I think that's why we identify so much with Peter, that, that up and down struggle. But with regards the Pharisees, the Pharisees are just on an escalating course of hatred. And there is an expectation that when Jesus said to the paralytic, I forgive you your sins, and they asked their question, how can you forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God alone. When Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise and walk, take up your bed and go home. They were supposed to understand something. Yes, your basic theological assumption was correct. Only God can forgive sins. And this exercise of the power of God at the word of the Lord Jesus is Enough for you to now be guilty of blasphemy if you refuse to recognise the power by which Jesus is working healing. He can speak of the forgiveness of sins. He can forgive the paralytic his sins because God has given him that power. God has entrusted him with that authority. Basically, from the time that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at the moment of his baptism, from that time on, there's a requirement in Scripture that all of humanity hears his words as though we're hearing the very voice of God speaking to us. We are to honour the Son as we honour the Father. This is, you know, this is, they would say their God was the Lord, meaning Yahweh of the Old Testament or Jehovah, as we've sung in some of our songs today. They would say that their God was Jehovah and the evidence before them is that their God, Jehovah, is speaking to them when Jesus speaks. That their God, Jehovah, has been incarnated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word incarnated simply means has taken upon himself flesh, has been made fleshy. So there's this expectation and this requirement that they recognise Jesus for who he is and actually bend the knee. You know, if there's, if there's something I hate, it's bending the knee. I really do. When, when 
politicians or public servants, as they have over the last couple of years, make a decree that you must receive, in this instance, a certain injection, and I question the validity of that injection, and I doubt that it's doing people as much good as they claim. Furthermore, I look at the statistics that are available on their own information pages, and those statistics tell me that I'm not at risk from this disease. If I catch it, I might get a bit ill, but I'll get over it because for someone of my health and my age, it's basically just a flu like any other flu for the last 20 years. When they decree at the threat of my employment that I must receive the injection, well, you might have noticed, I got a bit angry. I, I don't bend the knee to people who presume to order me around and say, your life is under our control. But this is Jesus. This is a completely different thing. And all of humanity is expected to bend the knee. When he gives a commandment, bend the knee. When he leads us in a certain direction, bend the knee and then follow him. He's worthy to be received as the son of God. And he ought to be received as the son of God. And to refuse to receive him and accept him as the son of God is to draw down judgment upon ourselves. And so... Jesus goes out and he sees a tax collector. Now, here we have this sort of subject of sin. Are some sins worse than others? And the answer most certainly is. You know, some sins have a certain finality about them. To, to, to do harm to a person does not kill them. I, I, you know, let me just remember the example. A certain high-profile minister in the USA recently compared the sin of abortion to the sin of greed. And basically he was trying to say that none of us seem to care so much about greed. Why do we care so much about abortion? Now, this man claims to be orthodox, genuine, reformed, faithful. Well, there's this thing, you see, I can, someone can overeat, but I can still preach the gospel to them tomorrow. It was idolatry. Now I remember. Sorry. It doesn't make much difference. Overeating would, could possibly be considered to be a form of idolatry anyway. It was particularly idolatry that he spoke of. Okay, there are idolaters in our town. There are people here who worship idols. They, they have emigrated to Australia. They've brought their religion with them. Here's the thing concerning idolaters. We can still preach the gospel to them. They're, you know, it's not... Final, And God has told us to go out into the world preaching the gospel and making disciples and leading people to Jesus. All right. Is idolatry evil? Yes. Is idolatry harmful? Yes. Do I want idolatry taught to children? No. All of those things. But we can continue to preach the gospel to idolaters. We can continue to offer salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord to idolaters. But the slaughter of a baby is a final step. That baby will not be darkening the doors of our churches. That baby will not be sitting in our pews. That baby will not be sitting under the word of God. And all we can do is try and work, you know, the question will get asked, are these babies saved? And the answer I can give is, I hope so, but I don't know. And I can't guarantee it. And I can't promise it because there's no passage in Scripture that literally clearly guarantees and promises it. There are passages in Scripture that give me reason to hope 
that infants are saved. But I can't promise you that. You know, there's, there's no guarantee. So some sin is worse than another sin, and the sin of murder or abortion is final. You, you, you've cut somebody off from the saving word of God. You've cut somebody off from the saving words of Jesus. Well, the Pharisees have graded sin, and basically they see a tax collector as a complete traitor to the nation of Israel. And in their minds, a tax collector is the lowest of the low, the scum of the scum, the most unworthy of the unworthy. That's where Levi sits in their social scale. Jesus went out and saw Levi, whom we come to know as Matthew, and who is the author of the Gospel of Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So just remember context. Jesus has forgiven a paralytic his sins. Jesus has proven, displayed, demonstrated that he has the power to offer the forgiveness of sins in the fact that he has the power to heal sickness merely by a word. That same Jesus has now called a sinner. In, in the eyes of the Pharisees, in the eyes of those who were arguing about whether or not he could tell a man that his sins were forgiven, he's now called the lowest of the low to follow him. And the lowest of the low leaves everything. He rose and followed him. Quit his job. <laughs> He's basically quit his job. Gotten up from the table, said, you know what? I can't work for Rome anymore. I can't work under these conditions. This man has called me and I must follow. He rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Well, who else is he going to invite? He wants to have a feast. He wants to celebrate the fact that he is a saved man, that his life has been changed. I mean, imagine that. You know, I try and preach the gospel and sometimes it takes me an hour and a half. And even then, you know, I may not see fruit. There's no guarantee. Jesus, all he said was two words. Follow me. Follow me. You know, you know he, he can heal a paralytic by saying, rise up. He can, he can call this tax collector who was supposedly the lowest of the low, the scummiest of the scum, follow me, and a life has changed. A life has changed. But who else is Levi going to invite? The Pharisees and the scribes aren't going to come. They hate him. And, you know, if, if you ask them about, about um, could such a person be saved, well, they might go to a certain passage in Scripture. I mean, I'm thinking here, I've got Jeremiah 13, 23 in front of me, where the question is asked, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The obvious answer is no. And they would say concerning a sinner like Levi, no, he can't be changed, he can't be converted, he can't be made righteous. He's gone. False religion. False religion. As far as they're concerned, the only way a life can be changed is if you join them. You must become one of them. So Levi invites those people who are his friends over for a feast and those people who are his friends 
were people who participated in the same sins that he himself was guilty of. And Jesus is there, feasting with these people. Now, just remember, just because we're not told in the scripture that Jesus did not say to someone else there, follow me, doesn't mean that he didn't. He called 12 to be disciples. He called many to be saved. Or I should put it this way, he called them all to be disciples, but he called 12 in particular to be his public disciples who were going to become his apostles. J.C. Ryle says um, a converted sinner never wants to go to church alone. It's a good way of putting it. He's hoping that his friends will also be converted. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Nothing's enough. Nothing's enough. For someone who's coming to the scriptures, coming to the gospel with a hardened heart, with no desire to be saved, nothing's enough. It doesn't matter how many people were healed. It doesn't matter how many miracles are done. It doesn't matter how much good the church has done in the world today. It doesn't matter how much good Christianity has done to society at large. You know, we don't, or I'm assuming that you, like me, don't particularly like though the ideology of those who have been elected to government at our recent election. We don't particularly enjoy it and we're a bit worried about what they do. But the reason that we had a society in which we could conduct a free election and the reason that we have these rights, though we be amongst the most common of people, is that Australia could have once upon a time called itself a Christian nation. The only places in the world where functioning democracies have been built are the places where the gospel has taken deep root and influenced society deeply. And so we're still living, as it were, on the benefits, on the fruits of the work that our grandparents and great-grandparents did at this moment. How long can that last? I don't know. I believe those who have been elected to government hate that fruit and want to destroy it. As far as they're concerned, basically qualified scientists should run society on scientific principles, which, by the way, has always been the route to the most destructive of evils. It's always been the way to go to the most wickedness, to, to, to the most wide-scale, large-scale large wickedness that mankind has ever been done. Nothing's good enough for them. Nothing's good enough for them. They, they want to set themselves up as gods. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Well, one of the reasons is they want to cast off God's cords because they want to be their own gods. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is interesting. It's sort of, it's implied in the text, but not clearly said. They spoke to his disciples and Jesus knew what they were saying. They grumbled to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. Jesus, Jesus knew. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, that's, that's easy enough to understand, a simple enough sort of proverbial saying. Only the sick go to the doctor. And these people, these sinners whom you consider to be the scum of all scum, 
They're the kind of people I've come to save. But then there's a sting in the tail of verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what's the sting in the tail? Well, ask yourself the question. Were the Pharisees righteous? They needed to be called to repentance, but they would not be called to repent. Jesus is not saying, you know, you're already righteous, so you don't need to hear the gospel. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is those who hear the call and know that they are sinners are those who are being called to repentance. And you think you're righteous and you're not. You're convinced of your own righteousness and you're not being called. I have not come to call the righteous. You know, if, if, we, was, if we were saying this in a conversation, we'd do that thing, you know, where you, you let people know that you're being sarcastic. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So then they wanted to continue the argument. They wanted to get onto religious grounds. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that salvation comes through me calling people to faith and repentance and through me clearing clearing or cleaning them of their sins. They come back with a religious argument. Really? Is that so? John, the forerunner, John, the one who proclaimed your coming, he had disciples and his disciples were like us. His disciples did the kind of works that we do. John and his disciples were old school like we are. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So what are they saying? John proclaimed you, but John acted more like us. Your disciples aren't old school. Your disciples aren't righteous in the way that we count righteousness. Your disciples aren't doing the works that we expect. John's disciples fasted often and offered prayers, and we teach people to fast often and offer prayers, but yours eat and drink. At verse 34, Jesus replies to them, you still do not, now I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I'm trying to clarify the meaning, we'll read it, we'll read the words that he actually uses at a moment, in a moment, but he's basically saying to them, you still refuse to recognise who I am. You still refuse to accept the evidence that is in front of you of who I am. I'm telling you I'm the son of man. I'm telling you I'm the son of God. My acts and my words are teaching you that salvation is to be found in me and in none other. And you still refuse to recognize and accept who I am. So let's read it. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So he's comparing his ministry on earth as basically the high point of a wedding. The feast of the wedding before the, before the bride and groom depart for the honeymoon. He's saying, my ministry is like the feast of a wedding. 
These are the good times. God gives good times and when God gives good times, enjoy the good times and give the glory to God. You don't, um, you know, if, if, if you were the most recently married couple, <laughs> imagine someone was at your wedding reception and they sat at your table or at a table that you had set, you had provided, you know, you and your families and had paid for the food, the whole setup, and pushed everything away. And as the food came around, they said, no, don't feed me. I'm, I'm, I'm fasting. I'm, I'm on a holiness crusade. I'm trying to overcome the sin in my life. How would you feel? This is our wedding, dude. We're celebrating. This is the high point of our short lives to this moment. This is, this is the best day thus far. Can't you relax for an hour and rejoice while everybody rejoices? There's no sin in celebrating the wedding. What's your problem? Well, this is what Jesus is saying. There's no sin in my disciples celebrating the fact that they are in my presence. Those who are the disciples of Jesus know who they're with. They're with God, the eternally begotten Son of God incarnate. They've heard the teaching. They've seen his power. They've seen his ability to heal. He could cleanse people of leprosy. He could rebuke fevers. He could drive out demons. He could heal paralytics with two words, only two words. He could call a condemned and hardened sinner to repentance. He could do these wonderful things. They know who he is. They're celebrating. His disciples are convinced that they have found the whole purpose of Jewish life. The whole purpose of Jewish life. When the Jews celebrate Passover today, they're basically saying that uh, the life of our nation is not yet fulfilled. They celebrate Passover with an empty chair. The empty chair is not for the Saviour, it's for the forerunner of the Saviour. It's supposedly for Elijah, because the Scriptures promise in Malachi that Elijah will come and preach of the coming of the Saviour. And so when they celebrate Passover, they're saying, the purpose of our nation is not yet fulfilled. The purpose for which God called Abraham is not yet fulfilled. We're waiting for the fulfilment of the promises. But Jesus is saying, my disciples, they understand. The purpose of the Jewish nation has been fulfilled because I am here. The purpose for which God called Abraham has been fulfilled because I am here. They're rejoicing. All the sufferings of the Jewish nation, all the sufferings of the faithful within what was basically an unfaithful nation. Remember, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the remnant, the faithful believing remnant. All the sufferings of the remnant, though they were in the midst of a nation that though it claimed to be the people of God, was not the people of God. This 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 uh, thousand year long, roughly, this thousand year long wait for the Messiah, for, for the promises of Abraham to be fulfilled, for the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. Here it is in front of us and we're rejoicing. You know, the longer you wait for something, when it comes, the more you rejoice over it. When the baby comes, it'll feel like it's been a long time and you'll rejoice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And when something comes that's been awaited so long, you rejoice over it. And Jesus is saying, my disciples understand this and you don't and you won't 
and you will not, and you will not accept that which is in front of you. Then he goes on to say the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So in the life of a believer, there are seasons. Okay, there, there are seasons. There are high points. There are low points. There are times when the walk is blessed and easy, when it seems like Jesus is just a hand's reach away, when it seems like his leadership and the strength that he gives you is just totally clear and completely undeniable. And you're rejoicing in those times. And there are times when you, you, you struggle to see him. There are times when you struggle to understand what it is that he's doing in your life or in the life of others, in the life of people you love, in the life of the church. I've, I've mentioned our election and think of just the bigger picture of the way our Western democracies are going at the moment. And it seems pretty de depressing. You know, the, what has been the fertile wheat field of Christianity seems to be seems to be almost nothing more than a than a field of weeds these days. And you struggle. There, there are times when it seems that the walk in the Christian life is a walk in something like darkness. I won't say we're ever in complete darkness because we're not. We should always be turning our eyes upon Jesus. Sometimes those simple little songs convey to us an incredibly important truth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's, that's incredibly good advice for any Christian. <coughs> that being said, even so, sometimes the days do seem very dark. And in those days, Jesus says, they will fast in those days. They will fast. They will suffer affliction. In the Old Testament, fasting was, generally speaking, something that you did on behalf of others to draw God's attention to suffering. Generally speaking, it was something that you did on behalf of others to, go, to draw God's attention to suffering, to troubles. And Jesus is saying, those days will come. Now, you know, fasting is not, how would I put this? It's, it's not as though there's a calendar date for it. And it's not as though it's a, a regular part of our life as New Testament Christians. But my friends, there are times when perhaps you'll lose your appetite because you are so concerned to pray for something. Pray. Pray. In those days, fast. But then he gave them some parables. Verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. So what's the new garment? the salvation through Jesus Christ that he's preaching, the fulfilment of the new covenant promises, the fulfilment of the promises God has given to Israel throughout the years. This is the new garment. He says you don't tear a piece from the new garment and put it on an old garment. What's the old garment? Be careful how you say this and think carefully about this. The old garment is not the revealed religion of the people of Israel that you find in the Old Testament. All right, that was true religion, good religion, given and commanded by God. And the faithful had the gospel preached to them 
in the words of the Old Testament, in the words of the priests, in the actions of the priests, in the, in the types of all of the sacrifices, in the types of all of the clothing. They had the truth. And it was preached to them and the faithful understood the truth. But Jesus is here speaking of the religion of the Pharisees. The religion of the Pharisees was Old Testament religion and then some. Old Testament religion and more added on. If the commandment says you shall keep the Sabbath, they came up with a hundred rules about how you were to keep the Sabbath. Can't walk more than a certain distance. You know, you, you, if, if you want to have a fire on the Sabbath day, you better light it the night before because that would be work on the Sabbath day. Hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations. In, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus utterly rejects this religious nonsense. Let's, let's actually quickly look to Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. So what's he saying? He's saying that if there are any faithful to be found in the nation, they're actually to be found among the scribes and the Pharisees. I would suggest it's because they were the people in the nation who were taking the word of God seriously and were prepared to teach the word of God as the truth. So do whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay themselves on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Remember, the call of Jesus, Luke, Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, I will take the burden off you. He's saying here, but the Pharisees lay the burden on you and they're not willing to, to give you, they're not willing to use a finger to help you. They're not willing to try and reduce that weight by even just using their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries, the little boxes that hold tiny little scrolls of scripture. And they might tie them to their wrists and some would tie them to their foreheads. And they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Notice they will not enter, and they try to stop other people from entering. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you could almost in a way substitute disciple or convert. You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So you're not saving them, you're doubling their condemnation. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Crazy little distinctions that almost make things absolutely meaningless. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dull and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom will keep whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. We'll stop there. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to take my teaching of salvation through faith in myself, and repentance from sins. I'm not going to take that teaching and try and place it on this superstructure of nonsense that the Pharisees have built over the law of God. You can't take... Well, I mean, first of all, who would tear something from new clothes to patch up old clothes? Just the very thought of it is ridiculous. You're not going to destroy a new pair of jeans to patch an old pair of jeans. You can't take old material and, and, and stitch it into an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And then he goes on to speak of wineskins and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and their skins will be destroyed. So a wineskin, basically an empty, stitched up animal skin. When they're fresh, they're flexible. They've got room for expansion. If you've got wine that is fermenting inside them, that wine will cause them to expand. It will give off gas. They, when, when they open a wine skin after a period of time, there's actually sort of a bit of a deflation. But once they're stretched, they're stretched. The animal's dead. The skin's not renewing itself in that case. Once they're stretched, they're stretched. You put the wine in them again and the wine tries to stretch them again. This time, there's no give in it. Splat. You've got a mess. The new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So he's actually speaking of them at that moment. They're the drinkers of the old wine. And they're saying, we've got enough. We've got all the religion we need. We know that we're saved because we're the righteous servants of the living God. 
We don't need any of this talk about salvation by faith or salvation by grace. We don't need you to come and forgive our sins. We're obviously righteous. We're obviously doing what is right. We don't need you. We've got the old wine. The old wine is their works by which they measure righteousness. But that's not the salvation that Jesus is offering. Jesus is offering a salvation that comes with the complete forgiveness of sins. The complete forgiveness of sins. I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that when you're trying to preach the gospel, if someone thinks you're saying to them that sin has no consequence, you might be close to the truth. (laughs) Now, if you know Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry, you know that he did not preach antinomianism. He did not tell people that they could sin as they please and say, Lord, forgive me my sins and everything would be all right. That's not what he was trying to say. But what he was trying to say is that the offer of the gospel is so radical. It's such an amazing grace, such an amazing forgiveness of sins that you basically are saying to the murderer, prostitute, drug dealer, that if you repent, if you call on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, forgiveness is there to be had. Your sins will be forgiven. And I say to to all of us here who are believers, Our sins are going to be forgiven. Even the sins we commit as believers that we know we ought not to commit, our sins will be forgiven. Does that mean we have permission to do as we please? And the answer is obviously no. And furthermore, if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we claim, and if we have the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sins, teaching us to be more like Jesus, opening our hearts to the Scriptures and opening the Scriptures to our hearts, We should not have the desire to sin as we please. I'm not saying you won't sin. I'm not saying I won't sin. That's not what I'm saying. But if it should not be our overriding desire to sin. Our overriding desire is to be Christ-like. It's to love and to serve God. It's to have the two great commandments fulfilled in our life. That should be our overriding desire, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves. Understanding that in doing these two things, the fulfilment of the law is found in them. Being Christ-like is found in them. If you want to know what that looks like, study very closely the life of Jesus and you'll see what it looks like to love the Lord your God as we ought to love the Lord our God. And we'll see what it looks like to love our neighbour as we ought to love our neighbour. And that should be our desire, to be like Jesus as far as is humanly possible for, for converted sinners like ourselves. Our overriding desire should not be to sin as we please. We should not be jealous of the world around about us. We should not be jealous of the sinners around about us and the crazy lives they live, even though they look happy in the crazy lives that they're living. You know, it it just... Sometimes, sometimes there's this temptation not to be serious, is the way I'll put it. You know, there are big questions to be asked. You know, and, you know, why am I here? Where am I going? They're big questions. I know that. But there are, more, there are other big questions to be asked. 
you know, what difference does it make that here we are, this, this little group of people sitting here studying the Bible? What difference does our striving make? What difference does our efforts make? Well, my friends, what else would we be doing if we're the servants of the living God? What else would we be doing? This is actually our privilege. This is, this is blessing. This is, this is the path of blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor in the way of sinners. That's us. Blessed. This is the place of blessing. This is the life of blessing. And there can just be this t- temptation not to want to live this life. Why can't I just relax and be as stupid as the people around me? They don't seem to care about anything. And they seem to laugh. You know, you know I, I don't know if you've never wondered about that temptation. I, I make confession. I have felt it at times. I, I look at the world around us and sometimes, you know, it's just... I, I, I have this conviction that this society in which I am living is under judgment and trouble is, trouble is down the road. And I don't enjoy that conviction. You know, I study the scriptures and the scriptures tell me that if God does not bless this nation with some kind of amazing revival of Christian repentance, well, God is basically directing us down a course to judgment. We, we are becoming officially and openly increasingly wicked and rebellious. And that's very sad. And so there are times when, I mean, you know, I'm just trying to sort of be honest. There are times when I almost wish I could switch it off. You know, it's like bad news coming out of the TV. Press the button, turn it off, get rid of it. But this is the age in which we were born. And our blessing is that we are to be the servants of God. Here in the midst of downfall, we are to be the servants of God. There's to be light in our houses when there are darkness in others. We're the servants of God. That's our blessing in this time. When the judgments of God fall upon Egypt, they're not going to fall upon his own people. This is the blessing of our time. Even though it's in a way miserable, I I love this nation. You know, a friend of mine actually sent me an invite. He said, why don't you come and live in America? Our president's hopeless. Our president's hopeless, he said, but um, our constitution is great. And if we can make it stick, this nation could be turned around. And I I answered him, look, I like your country, but I love my own. And this is where God has put me. And I'm going to do what I can here and now. So although I feel this temptation to switch off and to be as stupid as the people around me and not worry about anything, In the end, that's not actually my strongest and overriding desire. My strongest and overriding desire is to serve God. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. God making us new wineskins with new wine. We know who Jesus is. We're not Pharisees trying to justify ourselves in his sight. When we're in his presence, we'll rejoice as though we were at a wedding. And sometimes when his presence is harder, when he's been taken away from us, we'll fast in those days. We'll deal with the troubles. But we know who Jesus is and we know where our salvation is and it's in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And may the Lord maintain us in faithfulness no matter what he's doing around about us. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has been made known to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and that in knowing Christ, we know you, our Father in heaven. Our Father, we pray that you would maintain us in faithfulness, maintain our courage, maintain our resolve. Help us, Father, to be more like Jesus in all things. Help us, Father, to live according to godly desires. Help us, Father, to shun temptation, to, to pursue righteousness. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.